I have with me today an award-winning pianist, musician, composer, arranger, band leader, and educator whose second album, Convergence, is dropping in October. Welcome, Nick McLean. <laughs> Thank you very much. It's a real pleasure to be here. It's it's my pleasure having you here. I love the I love the mic. It almost looks like you're gonna play for me while we're while we're talking a couple of notes and you know you'll sing along as you're as you're doing this as opposed to it just being a conversation. But uh given that we've had a previous conversation, given that I've seen you live, I don't mind. If you want to break into a song, that's perfectly fine. I, I don't think anyone wants that. <laughs> <laughs> are you kidding? You are a talented musician. I'm not I'm sure a talented piano player, not yeah. so much a singer. I, I, I don't know. Maybe you do scat really well, perhaps. Uh, I know a trumpet player that I that I spoke with that because the mics went dead on him, he had to do a sort of a live scat thing while they were working on the electronics and oh, yeah. said, it actually worked out really well but <laughs> i'm not sure how well you could handle that i have to say though getting to see you live was an absolute pleasure it gave me more insight into your connection with music i mean i watched as i said before i've watched your sessions and i've watched you working you know on the piano but the camera's just on you and the band members are separated and everything but then seeing you live seeing the interaction between you and your the other band members unbelievable difference to that and i had said to you it's it's a tangible difference that i really really like to see because yeah, it yeah. gives me that that background piece to how you get into your music and i have to say man i watched you and i saw like three different it was like watching a jekyll and hyde kind of thing because you attacked your piano you played with it like it was like it was you're just enjoying it. You're just having fun. And the notes were just coming on their own. And you were really excited and happy with what was coming out of the machine. And then other times you were actually speaking to it. And I don't know what is going on in your head as you're playing, you're talking. And I can see it's this really stoic look on your face as you're having a conversation, as you're playing on the keyboard. I want to get an understanding of that. What What is going through your head when you're in those different stages? The attack stage, the playful one I get... I've seen that with other with other uh, instrument players, and their explanation is very much the same. They get lost in the music, and it's fun. But it's the attacking and the conversations that I really want to understand. So give me give me some background on that. So I mean, it's in terms of what I'm thinking about, um, nothing really. It's it's I'm when when I'm in that zone, when I'm in that mode, I'm trying to be as engaged with what's happening as in the moment as I can. Right. Um, and and like you know musicians like we 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 put in thousands of hours of practice in order to make the things that we're playing instinctual so that we're so that we're not gave engaging on on a conscious level right. um like you know it's 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 we're we're going to be engaging on a conscious level at some level uh in the performance but but ideally um as much of it as possible is happening underneath that uh into the instincts so that we can react in the moment to things and and so that we can follow intuitions to places that we might not expect right um, so like if i'm attacking the piano it's just because i'm getting really excited and i'm i'm <laughs> i'm you know and, and i'm not i'm not letting myself uh i'm i'm, I'm not uh, I'm, I'm forgetting the word for it, but I'm, I'm not holding myself back. I'm just letting myself go wherever wherever that takes me. Right. And as as for the talking, um, so I'm I'm probably humming along with what I'm doing because um, I I used to like it years ago. Um, I was working on trying to get a uh, a really solid melodic thread 
um, through my solos, like a, a through line that I was able to follow. And I, and, and I found that singing while I played was, was a way that really helped connect my mind with my hands in, right. in a way that just made things sync up a little bit more and gave things more of a, a coherent narrative. And okay. So for years I would sing while I was playing, uh, but then then you know it's it's I would I would start to get annoyed with it because uh, like okay well my the playing sounds great but the singing really is quite terrible. <laughs> so, so it's it's I, I've calmed that down a bit, but but you know it's it's I'll still hum or something every now and again because there'll be again it'll there'll be an unconscious thing that just that comes out while I'm while I'm playing. Okay, because what my interpretation was when you were being angry when you were attacking the keyboard it was like you're driving the conversation so the four band members are playing and it's your turn you're driving the conversation so i'm going to say this is where we're going and the rest of you follow suit when the other band members would start to kick in like brownman would kick in and you just sort of play back and you could see yourself relax you sort of lean back away from the keyboard and you've got this huge smile on your face and it's like yeah i'm here i'm just here for the fun i'm just here for the fun the conversation piece it's not humming because you're actually articulating and i wish i had filmed it so that i could see if i could get what words you're saying right but it's almost as if you are speaking to the bits and pieces that you're playing not from a technical perspective not saying okay here's the here's the break okay this is where i'm it's more it's more like you're walking yourself or the keyboard through what part of the session you're going into okay now we're gonna dive okay now we're picking this up okay, now i'm going and that's it it's these quick little com not even conversations it's these quick little statements that you were making as you're playing and you could see your brain was working so it's not it's not like it's a it's it's a it's a process and i'm sure it is subconscious but it's that subconscious part of your brain that wants to take control and so you speak mm. control because everything else is so subconscious that it just sort of happens. But this is where your subconscious brain is saying, no, today I need a control right here. I need to do this thing here. And you're saying it and probably don't even realize that you're articulating it with your mouth. You're actually saying, because anybody sitting as close as we were sitting to the stage yeah. would have seen you talking. And they go, what's he saying? Is he singing? Is he singing along or is he saying something to one of the band members, but they're too far away? Or, you know, does he have one of those secret mics and he's going, okay, get the guy in the back corner. <laughs> <laughs> but it was really, I loved watching it because you see different artists when they play and how they get themselves lost. Your, your, your bassist will on occasion drift off. Like he just goes away and he's playing music, but his eyes are shut. He's backed away from the from the from his instrument, but his hands are flying all yep, over. Yep. It's like, OK, I'm gone. I'm gone. And I'm in the music now. I've just drifted off. It's almost like you'd see him levitate and float away from it. But the, the music would continue to play. You have such complexities. I would love to watch an entire three or four hours of you playing piano just to see where you go and when you get there and then be able to analyze, I'm an analyst, watch things to see what's happening in music and to see where things are going on. I really love doing that. The interaction between you and Brownman, you and the drums, you and the and the, the, the bass. Unbelievable. I love watching that. You guys have such synergy. You have such connection. It's as though you've been doing this for decades. And I know it hasn't been that long, has it? How long has the quartet been together? The quartet has been together since 2016. Um, 
Brownman and I have been playing together for almost a decade. So really? we've yeah, we've we've built we've built a real thing and 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 we understand where each other's coming from and and we understand each other's personal language so we're able to we're able to interact with that very easily and 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 very forthrightly. Um uh, ben Duff, the uh, the bass player that you would have saw us with, we started playing with him in 2019. Um, and uh, the the original bassist for the group uh, is a cat named Jesse Dietschy. Uh He's a phenomenal bass player. Uh, he's been getting busier with the uh, Toronto Symphony Orchestra, so oh he my didn't goodness, okay, have quite as much time for Nick McLean Quartet. So, so Ben Duff, Ben Duff picked up the reins, um, and then. Um, the uh, the the drummer that you saw us with uh, is a young cat in Toronto named Jackson Haynes. He's uh, he just started his fourth year at Humber, and and so the the level of interaction that you're seeing it's like it's really a testament to his ability to adapt and and get to new get his head into new situations because that was his first time playing with us. It's I mean that was that was the third show on the tour, um, right. but that's the first time that he's ever played with the group and he fit right in like a glove. He I mean he's he's also a workhorse. So <laughs> he really he studied the book like crazy. Um, right. but but he he got everything inside himself so that he was able to get access the same space as us, able to um, react uh, on an instinctual level and and you know there was no holding back. He was, you know, given given his absolute 110 percent um ferocity of the drums which is what that band need, uh needs yeah um, and it was funny watching him the expression on his face because I, occasionally i would glance straight at him and he it almost looked like he surprised himself on a number of occasions he'd be playing and all of a sudden you'd get this the little look on his face his eyes would go whoa what was that and you'd see him go well oh, and he'd keep playing and he'd smile and get more more into it more and then all of a sudden another one would go and he'd go whoa and his eyes light up and yeah. it's like oh i like that and well that's that's the thing with this kind of music it's it when when it's being done really well and i hope that we do it really well it's exploration um and you know this is this is what herbie hancock was doing this is what miles davis was doing what wayne shorter was doing um they were they were getting up on stage and there was there was a willingness to fall on one's face because you're diving into the unknown and you don't know you don't know where it's going to take you and so that's partly what makes it so exciting because when it takes you to a really interesting place you're like oh I didn't I didn't know we were going to go there, but we did. And it was great. Yeah, that's that that level of improvisation that I said when we were talking earlier um, that your music has, even though there is control to it. There is an entire song that you've built, you've developed it, you've arranged it. But there's still that playful improvisational feel to it. And the song that we're going to be playing at the end of our interview has that bright, engaging session light. But it also has this feeling of improv improvisation, which I thought is really cool when you hear it. It just you feel like, am I listening to a band that's playing a song that they played many times before? Or am I listening to a group that got together and are just banging away at something that sounds phenomenal? And it it holds its own, which is really, really, really good. And people are going to hear this at the end. But it's the fact that you have that creative skill to make something sound nuanced. And I imagine it's because of the playing every time you play it, you don't play it exactly the same way. And it's Absolutely. possible that's the reason why you speak to your keyboard, because you're saying, I'm going to change this up. I'm going to go in this direction. I'm going to go. Maybe that's what you're doing. I don't know. <laughs> we'll get the psychiatrist in in 15 minutes to talk to you. About no, I'm kidding. <laughs> but I mean, 
Really, really like that. Now, you didn't begin with uh, the quartet. You began with an electric jazz group, Snaggle, yes. correct? Yeah, yeah. So Snaggle... How did it evolve? How did it evolve from Snaggle to the quartet? Walk me through that. Well, so Snaggle started in my fourth year at Humber, because um, fourth years at Humber do a recording project okay. uh, as part of as part of the curriculum. So um, uh, the bass player of Snaggle, uh, a cat named Doug Moore, and I, we decided to pool our sessions so that we could so we could put out a full album. And so that was that was how Snaggle was born. We both did some writing for that group, and we put out uh, a record, a self titled record called Snaggle in oh uh, twenty fourteen, I think. Okay. Um, and so that that band takes a lot of influences from Weather Reports, from you know Return to Forever, like a lot of 1970s era electric jazz, but also modern uh, influences like Snarky Puppy um, are big influence for for the group. So okay. it's it's that that flavor of writing, and and at the time it was like that that kind of stuff was very new for me i was introduced um to electric jazz by doug um in my third year at humber because he was super into it uh and so he started feeding me lots of things like hiromi uahara like brecker brothers um like uh you know 1970s miles davis all that kind of stuff and right. and 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 I loved it. I absolutely loved it. So so you know I was really excited to explore this new kind of thing. I bought an electric keyboard and 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 we're doing all that kind of thing. And so Snaggle Snaggle was gigging and we we uh, we did that for for a long while. Um, we uh, and then so I met I met Brown Man uh, a a year or two after we released that first record we were playing in a big band in toronto called the socialist night school which was uh led by the tenor saxophonist chelsea mcbride fantastic tenor saxophone player uh currently in new york um and and snaggle was missing a trumpet for a gig so i asked brown if he would uh sub in because i i knew him from brownman electric trio i already loved his uh his electric playing um and so he subbed in. He had a really great time with the ensemble. He enjoyed the tunes. So uh, we, when it came time to record that group's second album, The Long Slog, which came out in 2016, um, I asked Brown if he would guest on a couple of tracks and if he would produce the record. So we started. That was when we started working really closely together. Uh, we discovered that we have um, so many things in common. We've got such similar tastes in music. We've got a lot of the same values in terms of what we what we value from artistic output. Uh, like we 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 like a lot of the same like books and shows and movies. Like we're both huge science fiction nerds, um, <laughs> and and so it's yeah. And, and 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 we also we we work similarly. Like we're both very organized people. So so um, when. The Long Slog came out in 2016. Brown signed the group to Brown Source Records, his Brooklyn-based jazz label, and he brought me on board as a label manager. And so we started working together a whole lot. And so Brown, at shortly after that time, Brown uh, came to me and said, "Hey, man, uh, back in my day, uh, I mean, not not that his day is done, uh, but when when you know when I was when I was a young man." Um, I was getting all the calls for all the Latin jazz trumpet chairs, and I was getting known as the Latin jazz trumpet player. Right. Um, and and like his band Crusoe, uh 
was uh, had had just won uh, like the Montreal Grand Prix to Jazz and and were touring the country, and so he was very much getting known in that realm, and he was. Um, he was concerned about getting pigeonholed as only doing the Latin jazz Latin thing. Jazz, Nova, that yeah, guy. and and especially like especially a man like Brahman, there are a lot of different facets to his artistry. So, uh, you know, hence was the birth of Brahman Electric Trio and Groove Asylum and all of his other, you know, eight other incredibly uh, creative ensembles. And so he said to me, "Listen, man, you're in danger of getting known as the electric jazz keyboard player if you don't do something else." I know Herbie Hancock is a big influence for you. Why don't you do something influ- that that showcases those influences? Right. And so this this was the birth of the Nick McLean Quartet because it's I'm a huge fan of Herbie Hancock and like especially his 1960s Blue Note era recordings like Main Voyage and Empyrean Isles. Those those are touchstones. Main Voyage. Yep. Yep. Yeah. And 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 like in in that era. The uh, Herbie was using the Miles Davis rhythm section, like the rhythm section of the second Miles Davis quintet with Wayne Shorter. So Tony Williams on drums, Ron Carter on the bass. But instead of Miles Davis filling his trumpet role, it was the firebrand Freddie Hubbard. And so, you know, I knew I needed a firebrand in my band. So I was like, hey, Brown, you play trumpet for me. And, and you know, he very graciously said yes. And, and you know, the rest the rest is history. We grabbed uh, Jesse Dietschy on bass and Tyler Gertson was the drummer at the time, whom uh, Tyler and I gone through Humber together so we played together for years and in 2017 we put out our first record rights of ascension um yeah which which um showcases some of our herbie hancock influences uh like we we opened the record with three uh cuts from herbie hancock uh oh it's been a while so i'm i'm forgetting uh we open with Cantaloupe Island, the classic Herbie Hancock tune. Then we move into Driftin', a cut off his uh, first record uh, as a band leader, Taken Off. Uh, and then, uh, and then that the the super hard, like super fast tune off of uh, Main Voyage, not Main Voyage, Imperial Isles, One Finger Snap. Right. Um, it's like this is a classic tune that that's used by uh, like older folks at a jam session to clear the stage of youngsters because it's it's brutally difficult. Uh, and and then we and then we then we start diving into some of my originals and and there's a, a Brownman original on that one as well called The Madness of Nero, which is a, a long form odyssey and it's incredible. Um, and uh, so, so that was that was the first record, and we put it out in 2017. It did really well. We were really, uh, really humbled by the reception. Um, it won it won a couple of awards, and and we toured the country with it in uh, 2019. Um, which at at the time we we had to leave Jesse and Tyler at home because they were getting busy with other things, and so we grabbed Ben Duff for for that tour, and then we also grabbed Jacob Wutsky, who's an incredible drummer. He's he's based in Montreal these days. Uh, he's got his own. Uh, uh, modern jazz project uh, that just put out a record called um, uh, Show Yourself, uh, which is a fantastic album. And he's also the drummer for the two-time Juno-winning vocalist Katie George. Um, and so he's he's touring the country with her lots. Um, but uh, so when we when we did the national tour in 2019, um, Brownman and I like we, we pulled each other aside like at the end of the tour and it's like okay these these two guys Ben Duff and Jacob Wutsky, these guys are special uh, and especially after a month and a half on the road you build real synergy with cats so we knew that we wanted to do a record with these guys and. Yeah. So I started writing tunes um, like almost as soon as we got back. So like, okay, 
we're gonna we're gonna get this done this is gonna be great and then you know everyone knows what happened in 2020 the global pandemic yeah. um, that shuttered everything and you know we had we had a tour booked we had studio time booked we we're all ready to go and then everything got canceled <laughs> so we um so it got um you know it got backburnered for a little while um i i did a, a solo piano double disc record called can you hear me yeah so and this is something that i had to ask you i mean 2020 pandemic starts 2021 you get introspective and you decide to do a solo album now was this something you had to get out of your system and say okay i'm just gonna do this while i'm all by myself because <laughs> it's solo i'm alone and i can't get together with anybody or was this more of just a, a creative outlet because my understanding is you did dolphin dance on that double album and then Brownman listened to that and said, we can adapt that to the next, the new, the new album, your one that's dropping in October, you, because you put that, you put that into uh, Convergence, did you not? So actually it's, <clears throat> it's the reverse. Um, so Nick McLean Quartet was already playing Dolphin Dance in live shows. Really? Um, yeah, yeah. It, it's um, it didn't it it didn't make it to uh, to Rights of Ascension, but you know it's it's a classic Herbie Hancock tune that's that's considered a standard. Um, right. So you know we we absolutely pull it out because because we love that tune. Um, <laughs> So we we knew we were going to record it on on the new record and and Nick McLean Quartet kind of had a way that that we did it we had our own little isms that went into Dolphin Dance and right. um so uh the solo piano record was was something that I wanted to do for a while um so I I studied with um David Braid at the University of Toronto and right. and he he does a lot of um solo work and he he imparted a lot of his own knowledge and processes and and stuff into me as as i was studying with him so he has an, an enormous influence as, as to how i approach um solo piano and so i knew this was something that i wanted to do because it's solo piano is so important for right. a piano so I, have, I have to ask this individual that assisted you are there influences or was his influences people like bill evans and keith jarrett because when i listened to your solo pieces i had uh, a little Harry Winston thrown in there. It's kind of like you did a mashup of stylings, even though it's all your own. Or George Winston, not Harry. George Winston, Bill Evans, Keith Jarrett were the names that popped into my head as I'm listening to you because you've got a lively, varied style in it. But there were a, a few pieces that felt very introspective, felt very, very from the soul, kind of reaching it in and pulling it out. And so that to me, that's a sort of a George Winston feel to, to the piano. Um, did, were those his influences or were they your influences those those were my influences uh i mean like i'm 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 sure david takes influences from from some of those guys too because it's you know it's hard to be a jazz piano player and not have checked out some of those giants but it's yeah. from 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 braid i got more processes and how to think about music and and like honestly he was he was the first teacher who told me how to learn music um it's it's crazy it took me it took me until my master's degree before before someone sat me down like okay this is this is how you actually learn um <laughs> and 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 rather rather than just okay here's what you should learn um right. And and it completely changed so many things for me. It reorganized how I how I approached my instrument and and a lot of a lot of how I a lot of how I take in new information today, how I organize it, how I spit it out, uh, as well as how I teach students um, comes a lot from the lessons that I learned from him. Um, 
So, uh, so yeah, so I, I wanted to do a solo record for a long while because it's a very important thing for solo piano players. It sets the foundation for everything else. And, and so the pandemic just happened to be, you know, a very convenient time. You know, you can't, can't be in a room with anyone else. So why not just, just do a project where you don't have to be in a room with yeah. anyone else? Yeah. Sure. Um, so, so linking, linking back to Dolphin Dance, um, Dolphin Dance wasn't actually something that I planned to record for the uh, the solo piano record. I had I had about ten tunes, um, a couple a couple of arrangements of standards, but mostly originals that that I composed. And a lot of it was like really really intellectual, like really heavy kind of material. And so Brown Brown was producing, and he knew that you know if if I put out a record with just that kind of stuff. It was going to be a lot for people. It was going to be really dense, and mm -hmm. and because you know you need to you need to you need to break that up with something a little bit more soulful, something something yeah. you know not not that that kind of material can't be full of emotion, but sometimes you've got to sometimes you've got to have something simple. Um, you breathe as, every once in a while, otherwise exactly. you're holding your breath for the entire album or both. Yeah, albums, yeah. Well, and I mean, <laughs> if if you put on if you put on like Bill Evans solo, listening to like Nardis or something, you know, you don't you don't listen to that and you're like, oh my god, what a deep intellect. You go, oh my god, that's so beautiful, and yeah. and then you you notice the deep intellect behind it, but it's it's the emotion of it that hits you first. Yeah. So. So what we did in the studio is, um, so we recorded the tunes that we planned to record, but um, then then every now and again, Brown would go on the microphone from the control room and go, hey, Nick, uh, you know how to play Someday My Prince Will Come, right? Hey, okay, so why don't you start with like an introspective Bill Evans free, 3 and then move into like a drunk and staggering waltz and then you know like the party dress comes off and it's like a funky four where you're dancing and all that kind of stuff and 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 on on a bunch of the tracks on the record we we kept brown's instructions to me so that the listener can see okay well this this was the in the moment instructions and this is what what i did with it yeah. um and so Dolphin Dance was one of those um where we already played it with the quartet and so all brown said was hey man you know how to play dolphin dance. We do it with a quartet. I want you to do a solo piano version of that informed by the Nick McLean quartet version. So the Nick McLean quartet version technically came first, even oh, though the okay. solo piano one was released first. That then that explains it better. Yeah, when I, I hear it backwards, right? Because I'm hearing it and I hear the instruction and I listen to it and then I hear the Nick McClain version and it's almost as if one is learning from the other, but it's the reverse. And it's so wild to hear that it's the reverse because now my brain has to take it and reinterpret what I just, what I spent time listening to because it sounds so much nicer to say, this is what I did first. And then we took it and evolved it into this. And you hear it, you hear it when you're listening to it that way you actually hear that evolution but then to hear it, it's a devolution of we did it this way and now i'm going to take it and just sort of singularize it by doing it this way and it's oh well that's an entirely different brain space like come on so you've just messed my head up now i have to go listen to things again but <laughs> so do i have to listen to all the songs on your on your on your uh, your solo album because they're actually they're they're informed from other music that was you know band played as opposed to the reverse which is you singled it out and then it became band music actually it's i think that's the that's the only one that uh that took that order um i don't think there's anything else on can you hear me that um 
yeah, that took strong influences from any of my other groups. Um, I mean, I, I think I th- some of the solo work and putting it out on a third album that might be coming up and we don't need to talk about that quite yet. But yeah, it's yeah. I mean, it's I've, I've got some ideas of some of the original solo piano works that I might want to rework for Snaggle for um, for their next release, because that's that's the band that I'm I'm turning to next. Oh, really? Um, yeah, yeah. It's, I mean, it's, it's been a while since Snaggle's gotten a release. The last one was in 2016. Right. And 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 I miss that group because it's it's a lot of fun. Um, I mean, it's it's fun to be you know doing doing the double stack keyboard electric roads kind of thing on on the bottom synth moog sounds on top, um, yeah. but also like the I the the writing for that group i i really enjoy composing for it because that band is all about contrasts and right. and it's all about trying to make elements that don't feel like they ought to work together work <laughs> together in, in a way that feels logical and and i mean like the lens that that it's all being explored through is through the lens of electric jazz but but we go some weird places like the uh our our holiday single um that we released in 2016 it's called christmas tune and it starts off with like a bach chorale kind of a texture between the trumpet and tenor saxophone and then it immediately takes a hard left into like this creepy foreboding um thing with like like this almost like predator kind of effect on on the bass which immediately takes a hard left into this super loud and aggressive like almost metal um kind of thing before it calms down and then it finishes off as a polka um okay that is a holiday album that sounds like christmas at my house but (laughs) (laughs) well actually so the the influence behind that tune it's i'm i'm not a fan of commercial Christmas music um, mm-hmm. like you know as soon as December rolls around I find like you know all the radio stations uh, in every mall across North America like just everything that comes out is is happy and it's the same version of happy like you know happy sappy unicorns yeah. and rainbows yeah. kind of thing and and you know it's it's so I I decided to write I saw I saw a a gap in the market so I decided to create a Christmas tune that in Compassed a much wider range of human emotion. Mm. Um, so that the, the natural human emotion, the the family get together human emotion, you know, for the majority <laughs> of people, the happy I get because when you're in the mall or you're driving towards the mall because that's what you're only doing in the Christmas season, it puts you in the mood to shop. You're happy. You're gonna buy yeah. something nice, buy something expensive because you're happy. <laughs> but if you had the reality music shoved in your face, you'd be going, "Nope, screw everybody. I'm not getting them anything. <laughs> Give them a gift card at best. That's it." I'm out of here. I'm going home. <laughs> That's a good. It's a good news. I'm. I'm gonna have to. I'm gonna have to listen. Go back and listen to uh, if I can find it. Your your snaggle Christmas music because that's that's worth listening to. I missed that one in my research, and I think it's more it's... because I see holiday music and I'm thinking holiday music. I'm not listening to jazz holiday music. <laughs> I really seriously am not. But this. Sounds much better. Much, much, much better. <laughs> well, for, for people looking for it, everything can be found at my website, nicholasmclean.com, okay. under the albums tab. Everything's oh. listed there. Okay. Because that's I went there, but I didn't. Did I see Snaggle? And I. Snaggle's pretty far down. It's the, yeah. the solo, solo piano's on top, and then it's yeah. Nick McLean Quartet, and then it's yeah. Snaggle. Have you thought of adapting the two together, putting Nick McLean and Snaggle together and doing some kind of modern, updated, refreshed kind of version of electric jazz with regular, you know, smooth or 
you know, kind of kind so, of warping the jets. I mean, you kind of do with the trumpet, and I'll explain why I say that because I was just yesterday speaking with CTK out of San Diego. He's a trumpet player, really phenomenal trumpet player. He uses a physical mute. He doesn't. He he. The first time he'd ever heard of a digital mute was when I told him that uh, Brownman was using a digital mute, and I said it's it's phenomenal the difference. Like you can go from mic to mic and be playing regular trumpet, then go to a muted trumpet, and then have all these other effects. And he said, I have never heard of that before. He's a, and you hear his muting, beautiful, absolutely stunning, the sound effect that he gets. But it's that idea that you're already using the digital, why not take that one step further and apply it to your your bass, apply it to the drums, apply it to your keyboard. You can have the dual keyboard, right? You can have that stacked keyboard there and be playing the kind of music I'm thinking, I'm sorry, I'd be creative here. You're someday, my, my prince will come, do that as electric jazz, take that. And instead of doing the regular, you know, go start it out as a waltz, then go through the drumkin and then make it, you know, bossa nova, take it and warp it. I just go sideways with it. <laughs> Started out and all of a sudden it just twists. <laughs> yeah. And 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 you're right. We do kind of do that with convergence a little bit. Um like the the writing in convergence is a little bit more intricate, a little bit more involved than uh than rites of ascension. So there there are some of those uh some of those leanings from Snaggle, where I'm trying to trying to put together elements that 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 are a little bit further apart. Um, it's not it's not quite the same thing. But then then we also have the uh, the electronics on uh, on Brown's trumpet. So it's not uh, so what what he's using isn't technically considered a mute. Um, they're considered uh, well they're 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 effects pedals that he's running right. it through. And right. and Brown does still have physical mutes that he he. Uses, uh, you know, when when the time calls for it, um, like they're on on the first record, Rites of Ascension. There's a tune called, uh, oh, um, it's been such a long time since we played it. Um, something about the crossroads, blue versus brown. I've, I've I'm totally blanking on the name of the tune, but it's 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 a tune that's uh, inspired a little bit um, by that that old blues legend of uh robert johnson um going to the crossroads and selling yep. his soul to the devil so he could play right. blues like no other and and so um you know when when i brought the tune to brown he's like oh my god this is this is just the hardest tune ever and so the joke is that he sold his soul to play it because he sounds pretty good on it now but when 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 we play that tune he he brings out a plunger for it and oh, okay. and, and he does does the whole thing but um but yeah for it's Live, he's been experimenting a little bit with incorporating some of his electronics uh, at Nick McLean Quartet shows. Um, so we, so I asked him if he would, if he would do that a little bit for the uh, for the record. So for a couple of the tunes, um, there's some wah wah pedal, there's some delay in some other places, yep. um, and and actually there's there's a, there's an Easter egg on the uh, on the album cover that that pays homage to that. So really, I. Uh, Brown Man, the Brown Man Electric Trio's second album, Gravitation, features uh, Brown Man, a cyborg Brown Man in a spacesuit, um, <laughs> like descending rapidly through in onto a planet surface through the atmosphere, and like there are flames coming off his back and all that kind of stuff. And so, on the Convergence album cover, it's me sitting on the ground in a desolate, like post-apocalyptic. Yep. post-apocalyptic uh, apocalyptic landscape with all the planets in the background uh you know it's lining up but then in the middle ground kind of small you have to look for it is the cyborg brown in a space shoot 
or spacesuit crash landing onto the planet and and we we wanted to put that there as as a little nod to the fact that he's bringing just a little bit of the Brownman electric trio into into Nick McClain quartet oh fantastic i love i love that because now you're thinking beyond just the music you're thinking of it from an entire encompassing perspective right somebody buys the album like i think we talked about the art from yes song and those that very artistic value that they brought forward it wasn't just the music it's everything so you collect the covers because they speak to it as well right to yeah. the music stylings and so forth so i love that i'm gonna have to go back and look at the at the cover and go oh yeah there it is i can see that because i did notice that that scientific kind of view to both uh the rights of ascension and and convergence and you had said that you know you have that leaning towards sci-fi that you'd love to bring that into your into your artwork so that's phenomenal absolutely phenomenal i love that um so i'm trying to go through here i've got a list of questions and you met Brownman and he's been your producer he's been working with you how much would you say he is the influence of the music or your the influence of the music is it a two-way street does he bring things up to you that suddenly like blow your mind that you're going that was not the direction because as you said your 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 mentor had taught you how to learn learn music and does brown bring things that completely it's like contrary to everything you know this is the way i've learned music and all of a sudden he says well what about this and you what <laughs> is that has that ever happened it's oh all all the time it's so so i mean it's brown brown and i have been been playing together for almost a decade now like he he took me under his wing when or when uh when i was 22 um and he i've learned so much from that man about about music uh about business about graphic design about philosophy about politics about <laughs> art um he, he's 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 built me over over the last 10 years and so i mean it's on on a on a very large scale he has an enormous influence in my artistic output because he's had such a deep impact on my evolution over the last 10 years right. um now when it comes time to uh when it comes time for him sitting in the producer role um He's very sensitive to the direction that his artist wants to go, and right. and he's so he's produced four different records for me. Uh, now he produced the Long Slog in twenty seven, twenty sixteen, Rights of Ascension in twenty seventeen, Can You Hear Me in twenty twenty one, and now Nick McLean Quartet's Convergence in twenty twenty three, and so I've got to see him as a producer in a whole bunch of different contexts: electric jazz, modern jazz, solo piano, and. In everyone, he's extremely concerned with making sure that he understands the artist's vision. So, like, while he is always going to, um, he's always going to suggest things, and he's always, you know, when when he has input, he's always going to give it because um, he's, you know, he's got such a wealth of information and and wisdom and experience over the years. Um, but he takes great pains to make sure that it's couched within the vision. So, like, you're never going to get something from brown's like hey you know nick why don't we make this a smooth jazz album or or you know <laughs> something like that it's uh, like it's he's he's never going to completely change the direction of an album he's he's very much concerned with getting inside of the artistic vision and then bringing out the best possible version of of that artist of realizing that vision to the fullest extent possible um right. 
Mike, when when we did the solo piano record, um, he he just mentioned it casually in 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 one of our emails. But like, yeah, I just I just finished listening to like my eighty eighth uh, solo piano record. Um, and then and and then went went on to that it, like you know he was doing intensive research um listening to countless solo piano records just to get an overall uh sense of what solo piano jazz as a whole sounded like and right. and and the vast breadth and colors that it is so that he could get an idea where i wanted to fit in in the whole and so he could he could help guide and and say okay well it's you want this kind of thing in these records this is this is the kind of thing that 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 people have been going for and then he presents it to me and then as the artist i get to make the final say of yeah you know what that's really cool or no you know what i've got i've got a different direction i want to do things right. differently than these people so right. um and it allows it's, for the nick mclean flavor of what experienced in doing 88 or 90 albums of solo piano he brings forward this is the way it worked for them and you listen to it or you'll hear what he's talking about and you'll say you know what how about this and you go oh yeah and then he yeah. gets a little bit of a learning exercise from what nick mclean is all about right yeah and and it's it's not so much about allowing the nick mclean to show up but it's it's very much a he's trying to bring out the best version of of nick mclean in those scenarios. okay so he's never playing the, the, the not the drill you're looking for thing he's actually allowing yeah. you to do that to him these are not the notes i'm looking for you know yeah when and and he's like he's he's an evolutionist he's he's someone who like has deep respect and knowledge of the jazz tradition um and everything that he does is rooted in it but it's very much uh, with the eyes looking at tomorrow and and the jazz of things to come because he's and 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 myself myself as well neither of us are all that interested in recreating the jazz that's already happened right because it's already happened. It's yeah. already fantastic, and and so we wanna we wanna contribute our own small part of of the the overall jazz tapestry. Because um, you know, jazz music as a whole is very much about the individual voice. Um, you know, people can people can put on Miles Davis or John Coltrane or Herbie Hancock or Chick Corea, and and know that it's these guys. You know, even if it's a recording that you haven't heard before, they'll know that it's these guys just based on their personality that comes out of their instrument. Exactly. And, and probably the the biggest compliment that you can pay to someone um, is you can say, hey, I, I heard a track uh, on the radio and and I knew it was you. I didn't know who was playing, but I knew it. It had to be you, like from from the, and and that's you know it's it's that's that's a huge a huge compliment because it it shows that they understand who you are as as your own personality in the art form, and yeah, it's it's because you know all all the all the greats that we that we idolize and we take influences from, um, we don't want to be them because they're they're already them and they're they're going to be the best versions of. Like if I if I try and be Herbie Hancock, there's already, uh, you know, a giant of jazz that exists who's called Herbie Hancock, and you know, he's <laughs> already pretty freaking incredible. Yeah. Um, so I want to be the best Nick McLean, and and part of that is taking a lot of influence from Herbie Hancock, but also taking influence from a lot of other places, and all those influences are going to swirl together with my own, uh, you know, my own agenda, and whatever comes out the other side is going to be me. Hopefully. Yeah, I mean, you listen. You listen to some of the players, and you mentioned Chick Corea. And when I was doing my research on you, 
um, I went and listened to him because you had mentioned or uh, reading through your material. I hear that, you know, you bring up some of these these pianists. And when you listen to Chick Corea, there's a very heavy classical influence. You hear it in his music. So when you hear his music, you know, that's got to be him because of the level of classical music that's coming through when you listen to him play. And then you listen to Herbie Hancock and you hear there's less of this this classical influence it's more of a of an improvisational subtly uh, out sort of like he's in his own head when he's playing he's not going through the you know the chords of he doesn't have that in his head at all and that's the uniqueness of herbie hancock when i listen to you play i hear the influences so it is you. If I heard you playing someplace else, if somebody was playing music and it was your music, I'd probably be able to say that's you or somebody like you who has had influences like Bill Evans, influences like Keith Jarrett, influences like Herbie Hancock, but you're not. Like, it's not just. You have mm-hmm. all these subtleties to the way that you play that when uh, other than you know if somebody's watching and you're talking to your keyboard, which I haven't seen yet in any other pianist that I've ever watched. Uh, except for some really heavy-duty classical pianists that are doing something like the rack. You see them play, you can see them talking to the keyboard, but they're talking to it because they're arguing with it, because when you play the rack, you're actually having a fight (laughs) with yourself and the keyboard, and one of you is going to win. But in your case, there's a uniqueness to your playing, and I really really enjoyed it when I saw it live. I really enjoyed listening to it when, when, you know, engaged in the research that I did. So I'm probably one of the first, if you haven't had it, that said to you before that can probably pick it out that this is Nick McLean playing playing piano. So thank you. you have a uniqueness to your style. And I'll give that to you. Keep doing what you're doing because if you don't, you know, you're gonna fall into that that vat of oh, he's just playing Herbie Hancock. He's just playing. No, no, no. You have a uniqueness. Keep evolving that uniqueness. That uniqueness, though, what I'd like to understand is how does it come out from you? Do you start with sound? Do you start with the the classical components of of notes and timing and space and breadth and so forth? Do you work from a mechanical music perspective? Do you mer- work from words that you want to put notes to? Do you work from a sound that you've heard and then you want to adapt that sound into something that has a rhythm and carries through the length of a song? Walk me through your creative process. I want to get into Nick McLean's creative head. Well, in in short, yes. <laughs> no, do not. You're not giving me the Harrison Ford response. Yes. Uh, so it's it's so I mean it's it's a mixture of everything. Um there's there's a yeah, there's there's a lot of different things that will spark um spark compositions or improvisations. I mean, sometimes I'll sometimes I'll sit down to the piano and, you know, because I'm a piano player, I'll get really excited about a specific chord or something like that. And maybe that'll spark um, a composition um, or an exploration or um, or maybe it'll be a little melodic snippet um, or yeah, something like that, like like a little nugget of something, a chord or a melodic snippet or a bass line or something that might spark something. Um, but it, it might be something else entirely. Um, it might be an idea that I want to try and represent musically. Um, How to explain that one. That one that one just caught me. When you said an idea that sparks, give me that one because that just triggered off a whole bunch of Okay, no- well, so okay, so one of the one of the tunes on the record is a tune called True North. Um, and and so the the uh, 
the banter that I give um, before before we play it at, at, at shows is that this is a tune that was inspired by a geographical metaphor for moral theory. Um, and 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 you know, and then, then the rest of the band members are like, what? What on earth does that mean? And so True North is a fixed geographical location on the Earth, which is different from Magnetic North, which yeah. shifts as the magnetic poles shift. And most of the time, that doesn't matter because they're very close together and Magnetic North only shifts by small amounts. But every now and again, we get what's called a geomagnetic reversal, where the poles swap places entirely, so North becomes South and, and vice versa. And so... Anyone navigating with a compass during one of these events is in trouble because they'll think they're going north and they're actually going the opposite direction. And so this is what I think is the interesting metaphor for moral theory because whenever you're trying to take a stand against something or trying to fight against some kind of injustice, it's so easy to just replace that justice with a different inf a different flavor of injustice. And and my feeling is that the best way to try and avoid that is to try and live one's life by a set of foundational principles so that your own moral sense isn't guided by a moving target. And that, to me, is true north. So that, that was the idea. Um, in terms of how it sparked a tune, I tried to create a tune that felt like it was anchored to a point, but it felt like it was moving around that point. So... So there's a lot of there's a lot of pedals being used. So and and by pedals I don't mean like effects pedals, but like a single note that uh, that chords vacillate around. So like I could have um, I could have like a, a C down here, and then I'll have chords move around the C like. And, and so then I have I have the melody that that moves in similar kind of ways that kind of ebbs and flows, but then then there are parts of the melody that become untethered and 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 move around a whole lot more, and that's kind of that's exemplified in kind of the the uh, the parts of the tune that start swinging a little bit harder, a little bit more Blakey esque, contrasting with the smoother kind of floaty parts of the tune so right. yeah that's that's how i tried to kind of encapsulate an idea as 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 a musical composition and i love it and, i love it that musical representation of conceptual theory right so you're talking moral compass versus a fixed point and using the idea of physical compass and moral compass in the same conversation is is an interesting tack to use because it, uh, they have the same flavor, right? You can anchor yourself to logic or you can use a moral compass that spins in all the freaking directions and north becomes south whenever you want it to. And you can label yeah. things wherever you want on the compass and say, this is good and this is bad. Well, why? Because my moral compass says so. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I love absolutely. it. I absolutely love it. And, and giving me musical representation, that's right there. You're the first first person in my interviews to actually take music and explain a concept loved it absolutely love it <laughs> i hope the listeners love it i absolutely hope the listeners love that as it's, well i usually i usually find that it at least one person if not more um comes up to me as we're going around during the break and and says how much they like the stories uh and with with this kind of music like it's it's pretty weird music what we play um you know, like it's it's not it's not Taylor Swift that that most people will put on put on the radio as they're driving. So it yeah. it often takes um, it often takes us like I I always want to extend an olive branch to the audience, like a way in of experiencing and understanding what we're doing. Because you know, I'm 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 not I'm not one of those I'm not one of those folks that likes to. Um, 
likes to be smug about you know like how intellectual um, music is or or something like that. You like I don't I don't want a you know a tightly cloistered fan base of well you guys get it ha 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 these people don't get it um you know i'd i'd like i'd like people to get it and and i want to try and give as many opportunities um to to connect with the music as 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 i can um so that's that's partly why why we do the stories in between tunes so that you know as as people are listening they can think oh okay yeah i kind of hear that or maybe i hear something else like it's always interesting to hear um influences that that people hear that that might not have been on my mind when um when when i was writing or when we were playing the tune um because you know everyone everyone takes these things um through the lens of their own influences and and I mean that's that's one of the beauty, uh, or one of the beauties of this form of music is that there's a lot that is open for interpretation, and something that might hit me in a certain way might hit someone else in an entirely different way. And I always love hearing um, how the music hits people, and and sometimes I'm surprised of like what what they take from it, which can always be really cool. Well, that's that's the thing that about the music when I went and listened to it live, um, your music is. It's- is experiential that's the word i'm going to use it's experiential because you have to get through it and i don't mean that in a negative way i mean get through the whole process it's sort of like taking a hike you have to go through the whole hike to see everything that's all along the pathway to be able to say this was a phenomenal hike or this was the most boring hike ever right the fact of the matter is the narrative gives them direction gives them a couple of signposts to follow in the music on their own. So even the narrative can be interpretive different ways. So when you gave the narrative of the wisdom of Aurelius, when you played it and you talked about first the Nero, right? The fire, is it the fire of Nero? The, uh, the madness of Nero, the madness of Nero. That's correct. Um, you gave that reference. So people got the understanding of this was this chaos. This is this logical sense. And then you listen to the music even to some people who who's Aurelius and what do you mean wisdom? And and then they start to listen to the music and they're experiencing the music and they go, oh, I'm getting that now because I'm not hearing chaotic. I'm hearing a, a, a logical assumption of sounds that makes sense to me. And now I'm following along and I see the path. It allows them to sort of take the walk through. It's very much like uh, performance art pieces. I'm going to say that and you're going to cringe because performance no, art. No, no, no. No. In the sense, I've been to galleries where all the art was tactile. You can watch it, look at it, stand there and, and and observe, or you can actually play a role in it. And one of the pieces was this weird wooden structure that had little balls in it. And I walked over to the piece and I picked up the wooden ball and I put it at the top and I walked away from the piece. And this other person came up and it started moving. The ball started coming down and it's going clack, bang, clack, bang, clack, bang, clack. And they're cringing. And I'm standing next to it, looking at them, looking at the piece. What's happening? And they're starting to freak out. And I simply said, no, no, don't worry. This is an experiential piece. You're allowed to react in whatever way feels normal to you. And they're, oh, because for them, art is something you look at. Right. For them, probably music is something you listen to to get the narrative gives them more reference. So for me explaining to them, no, no, don't be upset that there's clacking noises. You didn't damage anything. This is the way the piece works. For you, the narrative actually allows people closer 
brings them up into the musical venue to say, this is what you're listening to. Listen and see if it makes sense to you. See if, if you if you get more from the sounds. You may just enjoy listening to it, but this gives you something a little bit more. Like you say, it's the intellectual yeah. level of the music and you don't want people just the ones that can say, oh, I understand what Aurelius is all about. I understand the stoicism of the music. No, no, <laughs> we don't want that. <laughs> we want everybody to get a view of it as being something that's more controlled and more structured and not maybe not stoic because the sound was not uh i wouldn't say it was a stoic piece if you wanted to yeah. do a stoic piece it would be you and the piano and a little bit of trumpet and that would be it and there you go very <laughs> stoic <laughs> this is the one piece of wisdom of aurelius it's, it's a single single piece that we throw in every once in a while but yeah i loved i love that that the narratives it's a it's almost like it's less about the music and more of an entire journey that we're taking together as as audience and and band uh, I've seen it. I've seen a few people that do that. I've seen a few performers that do that. I've seen a few bands that do that. That they talk a little bit about the music, about the the experience that you're going through as an audience, gives you a chance to breathe. Yeah. As well, because each piece is an emotional roller coaster too. Yep. And for yep. those people that really get involved, you can't ride a roller coaster fifty times not throw up. And I'm sure you don't want that happening. <laughs> <laughs> And but by yeah, the same token, it, it's phenomenal. I love the way you go through the process, and I I enjoy that you have a creative process that samples you 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 know it's this idea or that piece of music, and and that's a creative process that's not limiting, right? So anything yeah. you can turn around and look at the light switch and go, wait a minute, <laughs> I just looked at that, and the way the light hit that, that's and start to play notes. Yeah, I like that. I like that. The light switch of Aurelius. I like this. No. <laughs> <laughs> And by the same token, um, like just as just as we like to like invite the audience in that way, we love it when the audience gets involved. Like you know, it's when, when you know, when people hoot and holler and and scream for solos and and all that kind of stuff. Like this isn't this isn't a classical music performance where everyone pol you know politely claps and you know make sure you don't clap between movements. Um, you know, this is this is a living, breathing thing that we're trying to do on stage, right. and and you know, it's you'll you'll hear it from us when uh, when when someone plays something we really like, you know, we'll say something. We'll be like, yeah, and and we'll be egging the egging the guys on because you know we're we're feeding off of each other's energy, but we also feed off of the audience's energy. And yeah. this this was a big part of why. So before we recorded Convergence. Um, I put the band on the road for two weeks, and we toured all around Ontario and into Quebec uh, because, because in order to capture um, the energy of that kind of performance, you've got to actually do it. You've got to sit down in front of audiences and feed off the energy and see where it goes. Because um, rehearsal, rehearsal only takes you so far. Like rehearsal figures out how the tunes go, what the parts are, how you guys sync up, but. Once you're in front of an audience, it's a completely different energy, and we wanted very desperately to bring that energy to the recording studio because you know the recording studios. It's it it as much as you try and make it not that vibe, you're always going to get a little bit of a separated vibe because you know yeah, we're all in both. different. Yeah, yeah, we're all in different rooms. Um, you know, we we've got microphones in front of us, the red lights blinking. You know, there's there's a little bit of pressure there, and yeah. and so we we wanted to make sure that we had lots of time to be in front of an audience to work out the synergy and work out the interaction, work out the energy, so that we could do our best to replicate that um, when we were in the studio and bring that same kind of energy um, to the recorded tunes. Yeah. So when I when I watched your videos of 
convergence. And I said to you when we talked before that it had a session feel to it. And I wanted to see you live because I knew the live would be better when you were doing the touring prior to making the album. Did you find yourself making any adaptations to the songs that reflected better the impact of to the audience and the audience's response to it? So you played one night this way and then the next night you played, made a subtle change here and all of a sudden you got a really interesting response from the audience and you thought, okay, this is where I'm noting this in. I'm putting this little bit. We're going to go that direction. Did you find yourself doing that over the course it's, of those two weeks? I don't I don't know if there's anything specific um, audience-wise that like we made a change and the audience went, woo, and we're like, yeah, okay. <laughs> it's, I, I don't think there's anything like that, but it's it's the tunes were constantly getting tweaks over the course of the uh, over the course of the two weeks because right. right right before the two weeks we had two days of intensive rehearsal we were just in brown's basement all day just working it all out and then and then you know over the course of the two weeks kinks would get worked out over the course of performance we're like hey yeah don't do that there do this here or 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 you know maybe they're they're just things that we thought would work in rehearsal that when we hit the stage didn't work quite as well so we we tweaked yeah and that's yeah that's that's very normal a very normal kind of process for so do you go through a post-mortem after every show do you guys sit together in a room and go okay what what went well and what didn't go well what it, do we think went well um it's yeah yeah we do uh i mean we 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 don't usually like usually it's like right after we we've played so like right after we um right after we finish a set um you know brown will come over and and we'll we'll chat a little bit about how things went and you know we'll we'll, we'll give any notes that we have uh and then same after the show so that we do it while it's fresh uh right. so we don't forget anything um before the next one um and and actually i mean that's that's a pretty normal part of our process anyways um like when we're on the road, like especially especially if we've um, if we're if we're playing with someone new who who we don't know very well or who hasn't played with the McLean Quartet very much, um, right. you know, after shows um, we usually have notes for just okay, this tune needs a little bit more X, and and then you know like two or three shows later we don't have any notes because they're nailing everything and 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 now they're totally in it they understand the artistic intent and they're also putting their own uh, their their own personality into it. Um, but so yeah that's that's a very part of the a very normal part of our process so when it came time to prepare for the record it was just implementing the same kind of same kind of procedures but you could see that when like watching this watching the session that you know you're doing the recording and you're seeing it you could see a kind of a flavor of your playing on stage in the eyes of some of the guys that were playing like i mean you're excessively professional and brownman is excessively professional to the point where you're playing in session or you're playing on stage it's almost the same, although I found that you are much more playful on the stage than you are in session. You do still speak to your piano when you're on in session, not as much as you do on stage and not at the same times. Um, but what I what I liked about it or loved about it was when you're watching the videos of the of your drummer, which isn't the same drummer, I don't think. Uh, uh, no, so the in in the in the recording, it's Jacob Wutzke, our, yeah. our regular drummer, whereas yeah, right. Jackson Haynes was the young cat that you saw in Ottawa. That's right, that's right. So when you're watching those two, your 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 bassist and the drummer, you can see them sort of more engaging in their head. Like I'm on stage, I'm playing this like I'm on stage, I'm playing this like I'm on stage, and you can see them sort of pulling from an invisible audience. Right, a little more energy. I'm going to pull out a little more energy. I'm going to pull it. You guys, when you're playing, you and and Brownman, uh, I find that. You've already got that that vibe going. The difference is when you're on stage, it's 
you're taking what's happening in the audience immediately and applying mm -hmm. it through. Yeah. But you already got in your head an audience that is always there and always giving you feedback. And, you know, that's how you you have that that look about you of, yeah, I've got energy. I've got somebody sitting, even though I'm in a basement or I'm in my studio, there's somebody right here giving me feedback that's always with you. And then I see you drag off, you know, the audience. Like there was one one point where you were playing and somebody at the back of the room yelled, woo! And you kind of went, hey, you, you did an ear check. Yeah, yeah, okay, I'm going to continue here. <laughs> <laughs> so I like that. I like the the fact that you have that level of professionalism that allows you to both engage with real audience as well as have the one that runs in your head, like you say, during the process of of, of adaptation of the work that you do and and producing the the material in session, um, so that it doesn't seem as sessional. Because you can yeah. you listen to some albums and they say you know sessional. Yep. That sounds sensational to me. You don't sound, and then you get the same album comes out live at someplace, the Hollywood Bowl, wherever, and you, that's an entirely different. Yeah, yeah. Music. You know, you're you feel the places where your heart kind of goes. Oh yeah, yeah. Now I'm I've got an emotional com component to this. Whereas sessional, it's like okay, yeah, it's really good music, but it's a session. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's also it's also partly about creating creating the vibe in the session um i mean like i'm i'm extremely lucky that all my bandmates are really great dudes they're really funny dudes like there's there's a lot of there's a lot of interplaying give and take when we're not playing and yeah. and like like ben duff is is a wonderfully goofy character um uh, like in in the most in the most wonderful way possible. <laughs> so there are all kinds of sessions, or all, all kinds of points during the session where he had the rest of us in stitches, um, <laughs> you know, as he was writing stuff on on the wall. With there was like felt on the wall that if you brushed it a certain way, he could write things. Um, but then you know we're we're pointing Ben that now the video guy's got to come in and and scrape it off so it doesn't come <laughs> so it doesn't show up in the video. Um, <laughs> But so, yeah, I mean, all, all that kind of stuff helps and 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 having having the video guys there helped a lot because they they set up lighting in a way that that looked awesome. Um, and and I mean, I, I don't know how that how the other guys felt in their booths, but me in the main room with the big light down on me, like I felt I felt kind of like I was on stage, um, yeah. you know, it's still a little different because I didn't have I didn't have the boys around me, but um yeah, there's there there are ways of creating the vibe in the studio, and and I mean it's it it may seem like small stuff, but it's it's important because especially like the studio is stressful, um, you know, recording's expensive, and and you know stuff always goes wrong somehow, some way things are gonna go wrong. Like during during the convergence session, uh, on the first day it rained really heavily. Um, so the piano was having all kinds of problems. Uh, our poor piano tuner, we had to have come back three times. And on the third time, it was because the piano dropped a lead weight. So, so one of the, uh, yeah, one of the hammers wouldn't retract, um, because, because the lead weight dropped because the humidity was so up there because it had been such a big rainstorm that it was, it was messing with the piano. And, oh. and, you know, and, and, and like, you know, I'm, 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 sitting in the waiting room and we're like oh my god the piano's broken oh my god how long is it going to be till it's fixed we've only got until 11 to get nine more tunes <laughs> and, and then and you'll never know this from from watching or listening to him playing but poor brown was sick as a dog um oh it's so 
Actually, I should so I should I should tell the the rest of the story of of how convergence came together because it's it's harrowing. Um, so after after the solo record uh, and several false starts of trying to book tours and get the Nick McLean Quartet recording, um, Brown at the summer of 2022, Brown and I looked at our schedule then and said, okay, let's let's just do it. Let's just book it. Let's see what happens and and just hope that nothing happens because you know things were opening back up but covid was still you know flying around and you know if any one of us got covid at a critical juncture then that would be you know that would just be lights out so we uh it's the it's a uh it's maybe five days before rehearsal and i get a phone call from brown hey nick i've tested positive for covid i uh, like oh no oh no and so it's 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 just enough time that that he's going to be past the the time that he has to isolate for so we can still go on tour but we got to rehearse and and jacob's coming in from montreal he's got other stuff there's no other possible time for us to rehearse so we we all double masked up in brown's basement brown was off in the corner way over there facing away from us in the bookcase like we set up a microphone so that he didn't have to play super loud so that we could still <laughs> hear him but there weren't like particles being ejected out of his trumpet at us like it was it was nuts and 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 it worked none of us got covid um but um you know then we then we hit the road and and i had i had a whole bunch of rapid tests knowing you know we're, we're going to be in front of like hundreds of people over these next two weeks we could get covid and and like uh, my my wife my wife took our daughter and went to ottawa while we were um while we were on tour because our, our our daughter was like six months at the time so we really didn't want her to get sick because our immune system was still developing um so so she just went and hung out with with uh her parents and my parents while while i was on tour so we didn't have any kind of cross-contamination um and then uh, and then while we're on tour, Brown is still like, he's, he's got something in his lungs. Like he's not sick from COVID anymore, but there's something that's still there. He can feel it. Um, and as, as, as the tour progresses, it's like getting worse and worse. And so by the time, by the time we hit the studio, poor Brown was playing with pneumonia in oh. his lungs. And and he didn't he didn't know that like he knew something was wrong but he didn't know it was pneumonia he found out you know a couple days after the session when he went to the doctor like yeah you you have pneumonia um, and and I was I was sick as a dog too like I I just caught a cold like I wasn't testing um, positive for anything but you know it's <laughs> the poor the poor uh, like recording engineers Brown and I are sitting in a corner going. <coughs> And the studio <laughs> engineers like giving us the side. They they actually pulled us aside. Like, okay, listen, what's what's going on? It's like, don't worry, don't worry. We we've both been testing like every day for the last week. It's nothing serious, just a cold. I mean, he's got pneumonia, but you know, we're we're not going to give you anything awful. Um, but uh, but yeah, but it's so so when when we finished when we finished the session. Um, Brown was really proud of the band and he was not feeling at all good about his own playing because he felt like he'd been fighting the horn the entire time. Um, you know, he had pneumonia in his lungs. Um, but when I showed him the edits like a month later, it's like, oh, hey, I actually really like that trumpet player. <laughs> and, and again, it's from listening to him, you'd never know it. I mean, that's really a testament to like the, the, 
power that you get from Brown uh, when when he sticks that horn on his face. Because even through pneumonia, he sounds world class. Yeah. Um, yeah. So it's. You should have pneumonia more often. I mean, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Don't say I said that. Don't say I said that. <laughs> but. Um, so so we ended up we ended up naming the the record convergence um owing owing due to the convergence of all of these different factors like the finding finding jacob and ben knowing that this is a this is an iteration of the band that we really wanted to get on 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 tape uh, like as soon as we could um finally having things open up long enough for us to be able to to actually record and do that kind of stuff, um, being able to dodge COVID and not not have a you know an infection that came in and just stopped us in our tracks um, during that process, and then also uh, immediately before the session, um, we got extraordinarily lucky. We got uh, we received grant support from I think it was the Canada Council for the Arts it was the first one to come in. Um, uh, and they gave us some bread to to record, and then the Toronto Arts Council came back and said, "Yep, we're gonna we're gonna fund you too." And then the Ontario Arts Council came back, so we had three three grants, and these are these are hard grants to get. Getting all three is like winning the lottery. It's yeah. it's yeah, it's, it's, it's convergence. Of. What it is. Yeah, it's <laughs> it's convergence. Um, so I'm I'm this this record is really special to me. Um, like I'm, I'm really, I'm really proud of the of the playing that went on it. Like I think, I think Jacob, Ben, and Brown all gave an incredible part of themselves um, to record on this on this record. I'm really proud of the attention and the care that they took with all of my tunes and the amount of the themselves that they injected into it. Because I love all of their playing, and they've got such distinct personalities and 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 to have them on this record is really special um uh we also have some some guest artists on on the record on on dolphin dance uh the group's original bass player jesse dici um uh sits in on the bass chair for that one and it's it's so wonderful to have jesse back in that chair i miss playing with him i'm i'm so happy for his success like i'm i'm i know he's it's been a goal of his to to play with the Toronto Symphony Orchestra for a long time, so I'm I'm so happy that he's doing that lots, and uh, and now he's got a trio that he's playing with lots uh, with his own tunes, and they're they're releasing a record pretty soon, so he's doing fantastically, um, <coughs> and uh, and so it's yeah it was it was so good to play with him again, uh, and then on uh, on Eye of the Hurricane, we uh, we feature. Uh, a young uh, up-and-coming drummer on the Toronto scene named Matteo Mancuso, who's a phenomenal drummer, a uh, really talented young cat who who played with Nick McClain Quartet a bunch during uh, during the pandemic um, when Jacob was in... Uh, I mean, Jacob's still in Montreal, but he was in Montreal doing his master's degree at McGill University, so he wasn't able to make it back for the odd gig. So Matteo was the guy that we pulled in uh, whenever Jacob wasn't available. And so we feature him on Eye of the Hurricane. He sounds fantastic and then we on eye of the hurricane we also feature uh the multi-juno winner mike downs on bass um mike downs uh was the head of the bass department when i was at humber um he's always been a canadian jazz idol of mine i mean he's got uh you know he's got an incredible discography of of deeply artistic work and 
years before when we were doing the Rites of Ascension CD release at the Rex, um, Jesse wasn't available for the for the date. He was he was doing he was doing some kind of symphony thing. It wasn't with the Toronto Symphony Orchestra. It was with some someone else. But um, <coughs> we asked Mike if if he would be if he would be at all interested in subbing in. Pretty please, and and he said yes, and and it was so much fun, man, yeah. and and it was. <laughs> rehearsal with with Mike Downs was an incredible experience because here are all these like hard tunes that that all of us had been slaving over for a year learning um like all these weird things moving in different different places and yeah. and Mike Downs sat down at rehearsal and he played them like he'd been playing them his whole life <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, that was man crush there it sounds a bit of a man crush on that one though we got this guy's community just on it <laughs> yeah and so it was it was really it was really it was really special to be able to play with him at our Toronto CD release of Rights of Ascension so so when it came time to record Convergence uh, I really really hoped that he would guest on one of the tunes and he was gracious enough to uh, to do that, so it's in again. He sounds ridiculous on "Eye of the Hurricane," um, and then on Brown Man's tune "Wisdom of Aurelius," um, we have uh, Luisito Orbigoso, one of Canada's greatest uh, living percussion players. Um, he's, I mean, he's he's a top call for all of the Latin uh, ensembles in Toronto, and and I mean, does recording for for all kinds of ensembles across Canada and globally. Um, right. and so he, he recorded, um, uh, congas and bells, um, for wisdom of Aurelius and really elevated that tune and, and just deepened the Latin influences in it. It's, I, I love what he does on that tune. Yeah, so I, 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 that's something I noted on the tune that it has that bossa nova feel. It's, it's that taking jazz over to the Latin side of the so fence. It's, right? it's not bossa nova actually. Bossa really? nova is, yeah, bossa nova is a style of music that comes from Brazil. Um, so okay, bossa nova, so not the samba. Latin, you're talking yeah. about Latin. Spanish yeah, whereas yeah. Wisdom of Aurelius um, takes influences from Cuban jazz, which is more salsa, um, right. dealing with like piano montunos and, and clave and, and that kind of thing. I'm being educated in music in my interview. That's so nice. <laughs> 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 but I thank you. I thank you for that because, I mean, it, it expands my knowledge. I have a general sense of this sounds like this. And to be corrected in a very positive way, it allows me to go, okay, so it's a Brazilian influence if it sounds like this. It is a Cuban-Spanish influence if it sounds like that. I, and now my brain goes, okay, I can separate the two. And now when I'm listening, I've got a more diverse vocabulary in, in music. And I like that. Thank you. I appreciate yeah. that. I'm not, yeah, I don't of course. take offense at all. Well, I mean that that was that was me years ago. Um, because I mean it's it's these 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 very different styles often get lumped together just under the umbrella of Latin jazz. Exactly. And 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 I mean back in the nineteen sixties when uh well sixties and before, um, like a lot of blue note artists were incorporating Latin influences into their music, but it kind of became its own thing. Like it wasn't like capital L Latin music. A lot of it wasn't. Um, but it took some of those flavors, but it became its own kind of blue note thing. So a lot of jazz guys, including myself, um, <coughs> we listened to that um growing up and and so that that informs our latin jazz but here here like there there are all these like enormously rich traditions um coming from these these different countries that that have you know have a much deeper authenticity to them so when you when you uh 
like in in terms of in terms of the Latin jazz part of it, uh, and and so when you investigate them, you can start to see the the differences between them. So Brown Brown sorted me out because he's, um, you know, he's he's got he's got a lot of a lot of Latin jazz influences. Like he spent many years in Havana learning from some of the greats there. Um, yeah. And so he sorted me out on the difference between Brazilian jazz and, and Cuban jazz. And, 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 you know, every now and again, I'll still play a Montuno when we're playing a samba just to piss him off. But... <laughs> <laughs> well, you say, no, it's just grow, expand, take yourself out of Cuba, do a little bit it's of Brazil. fusion. <laughs> he's got to, he's got to evolve, you know, <laughs> I had, I had one singer, they were going to be incorporating some um, Creole and Caribbean styles i think it's sika is it sika i can't i'm can't. I'm not sure i'm not i'm not i'm not very familiar with those styles yeah and and the thing is hearing the styles it's something that you need to investigate because there's some interesting flavors and twists to it that you know you get you get a, a cuban latin flavor and then you throw in a little creole a little and all of a sudden the music takes a different twist right so like someday your dream might come you go through that drunken the waltz and if you threw in Creole, it'd be, whoa, this is an entirely different step. This is an entirely different beat and music. And everybody's sort of, where are we headed with this? And then you could throw in them, you know, over in Brazilian for a little while before, you know, Brown comes in, no, and throws back into Cuban jazz. But yeah, it's, for me, hearing the different styles and, you know, getting the separations on the different styles. So again, I'm like you, I started out thinking this is Latin jazz. No, split it up. You know, it's you can look at the world from 70,000 feet and say, this is this. And then you get in a little closer and you go, oh, no, I can see the subtle differences. I now can see yeah. that this is one and this is the other. And I imagine that in Cuban jazz, there's probably two or three flavors of it. Right. You get the it's, underground oh, there's, flavor. There's, and, there's and, a ton of different flavors of it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So as you get deeper into it, the intricacies split you apart again and you're going, oh, yeah. that's some of this, that's some of this, that's some of this and so on and so Absolutely. forth. Absolutely. Right? And that's that's one of the beauty of the interconnectedness that we have today, because there's there there can be so much cross pollination between different genres. I mean, on on this record, we we very intentionally took some more Cuban influences. Uh, we took some hip hop influences here and there. Um, you know, there's there's a, a few nods to electric jazz for the use of electronics, and there's there's a couple of funk influences here and there with a couple of the tunes. It's it's I love taking these kind of things from different areas because jazz music has grown to a place where it it, it encompasses so much, and and the hard of it really is in the improvisation these days it's in the spontaneity of the interactions between the musicians and and everything else is just different flavors and and different different avenues that you can take that ethos down that's um, right adaptations of, of of generics that you know people listen to and they say that's this and you go okay but listen to my adaptation that throws in a little Oh, I like that. I mean, Herbie Hancock did that with Mwandishi, um, right? That's he had African influences in that music that nobody had listened to before. Like, yeah, certain cultures did. This is their music, and he took it and went, "I really like this. I want to embed this in my jazz." So that was his seventy-one album, and we know Mwandishi is composer, which you know you could label that for yourself if you want. You can do a Herbie Hancock Mwandishi, right? Um, but it's taking and adapting cultural norms and evolving them and i mean you're you're very good at that i find that you take music and you adapt and you sort of eh, give it a little bit of a twist that makes it not standard not something that's that's base basic that people listen to and they're not saying oh yeah i know what i'm going to listen to 
right? Oh, I'm going to listen to this, like Christmas music. We, we circle back to that. The moment people say Christmas music, everybody knows what they're going to be listening to. Everybody. It's the same, 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 yeah. same. It doesn't matter if it's different songs. It's the same basic principles in music, whereas you take your Christmas from uh, from Snaggle with the Christmas music and people go, what the heck is that? <laughs> that? That is not a Christmas song. Yes, it is. Just get your head out of that Christmas <laughs> Christmas gutter and, and listen, this is music that's allowable in, in this season. Yeah. So I guess what we're going to do now is we're going to have I listen to you and we're going to take us through the musical stylings of Nick McLean and the Nick McLean Quartet with Road Warrior. Enjoy. All right, everyone ready? Road Warrior, take two.
I really want to thank you, Nick, for being a part of this conversation. An absolute pleasure speaking with you again um, and seeing you uh, again as well. I definitely have to go to more of your venues, uh, maybe sit a little farther away from the speaker um, <laughs> and not sideways that I have to turn my head and watch you. I actually enjoy having that face on view uh, of you and, your, and the band playing. Um, it was an experience. I absolutely enjoyed it. So thank you for being here. Uh, I hope the audience, uh, my audience, the audience will enjoy listening to all of the nuances. Hopefully they've gotten an education on the difference between Cuban Latin and Brazilian Latin music because they should. And that Christmas music doesn't need to be Christmas music. Um, <laughs> so I'm looking forward to your drop of the album in October. I'll probably go back and listen to the cuts that uh, I know are available, uh, but I'll, I'm excited to hear the rest of it. And some new musical creations from you. I want to hear some more adaptations. I want to hear some more pieces being thrown in. Maybe go and investigate Creole, see how that fits in. Sure. I wouldn't mind seeing some of that. I really, really wouldn't mind seeing you because I know you'd be able to take it. You're excessively versatile. Really love the way you adapt music. And I want to hear how you and Brownman with the horn can adapt some of that musical stylings. I would, it, would be, it would be exciting to hear that. So thank you again very, very much. Thank you so much. Uh, I guess super quick, just uh, so people know where where to find me and where to find the record label online. So I'm uh, Nick McLean Quartet, and and all of my ensembles are signed to Brown's uh, Brooklyn-based record label, Brown Source Records. Um, this is a record label dedicated to the catalyzation of new jazz art. It's a hundred percent not-for-profit label, so all sales, like all proceeds from album sales, go directly back to the artist. The the record label takes nothing, uh, and that was, you know, that's that's Brown was signed to some of the major labels at the time, and you know the royalty that he got was very small. So he wanted to set up a platform to advantage young artists like myself and and try and uh, try and help us to create more jazz art um so brown source records uh you can find the record label at browntosaurus.com um and and there's a bunch of phenomenal releases on on the label including the the new one from the nick McLean quartet convergence um uh you can find brown man our featured trumpet player and my longtime mentor and very close friend uh at brownman.com and i would highly recommend uh going there because there's all kinds of crazy stuff that he's up to there like this month we're doing uh he's putting on a uh a concert series in toronto uh, doing tributes to three uh, legendary trumpet players, Dizzy Gillespie, Freddie Hubbard, and Miles Davis. So the last three Fridays of September, we're, we're diving down the rabbit hole in those three books, and it's going to be wow. an absolute blast. <laughs> and then uh, and then people can find me at nicholasmclean.com. And this is, you know, any any show announcements. Uh, you can sign up to my mailing list so I can, I can email you about show announcements and other stuff. And then at the albums tab, is all of the all of the releases that I put out. Convergence isn't there yet because it's not technically out yet. It doesn't come out officially until um, October twenty four or twenty seven. One one of those. It's whichever one's the Friday. Um, but uh, uh, we're going to be doing CD release shows. Um, coming up in October and beyond. So uh, that's that's the best place to find out all that information. Fantastic, fantastic. And so I guess around the Christmas season, you become St. Nicholas McLean uh, at .com. <laughs> <laughs>